Psychological Horrors, and it's a director masterclass. We've got Danny Boyle, we've got Christopher Nolan, we've got Peter Jackson, we've got Sam Raimi. It's just an embarrassment of riches this episode, so I hope you're into a bit of a discussion here. I'm talking to my dear friend Brendan Cook all the way from Florida in the United States, and due to some technical difficulties, we had to do this interview over the phone. So it kind of sounds like it's over the phone. That's probably why. I hope you can put up with that. I do think it's totally uh, listenable, but it's just a little bit lower quality than maybe we're used to having on this free podcast that is Rank and Review. If you don't think it's up to snuff, you have a means to let me know. You do that by writing me at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. You've probably been here before, but if you have not, you should go in understanding that there will be coarse language, and there will be spoilers for the films being discussed. Check out the website at rankandreview.ca. And now let's jump on in to Psychological Horrors, Director Masterclass, with guest Brendan Cook. Brendan Cook was talking to me all the way from Florida in the excited states. Brendan, thank you so much for coming back for another episode of Rankin Review. It's my pleasure, Larry. I love to podcast, and I'm glad to be back. And just so your listeners know, it is currently 22 degrees Celsius here in Tampa, Florida. <laughs> it's currently minus five as we're recording, although it'll be a few weeks before the, the rest of the world catches up with us. This is your third time on Rank and Review, brother, and uh, that gonna, is correct. Yeah, we're going to do some psychological horror, and it's a, I think, a director masterclass. Uh, there's a lot of really good filmmakers here, and uh, I think they're taking on the tact of psychological horror, or at least they're thrillers with a sub- substantial psychological bent. Uh, what is your opinion on psychological horrors? 
Well, I think you said it right there, Larry, that these are maybe leaning a bit more towards the thriller genre, but certainly, certainly they're, they're all interesting movies in their own way, whether these, I say, some of them are my favorite movies, I love them, and other movies I love to hate, but every single one of them is interesting. Right. And in a way, you raise a really good question here. What is the difference between, say, the thriller or horror? When, when do we cross the line? I mean... When Psycho came out in the 1960s, most people called it a thriller, but in retrospect, I would say it seems far more like what we'd now consider a horror movie. So, Psycho's been accused sure. of... I, I, I don't think any of these movies are quite lurid or melodramatic enough <laughs> to qualify as horror movies in the conventional sense. Psycho kind of got the reputation of being one of the first slasher movies ever made, but... I guess that's the the price to pay of being a groundbreaking movie. You kind of don't know how you're going to be seen. You're either going to be scoffed at and ignored, or you'll be embraced. But uh, later on, they'll come to see what new ground you've really covered. Uh, did did Hitchcock intend to invent slasher movies? Uh, I don't know if he'd be grateful for that, <laughs> but uh, he did, I guess, <laughs> in to a larger well, degree. Well, I like that you mentioned uh, Hitchcock here, Larry, because. Maybe none of these directors is quite on that level, but you, you certainly have an interesting selection of filmmakers here. Oh, absolutely. Danny Boyle is one of my favorite filmmakers. Even when he, even if a movie comes out that makes me question him, like usually there's something about it that will like grab my attention. I was not into the idea of a sequel to Trainspotting, and that worked way better than it should have. I didn't What's notice. You didn't know there was a sequel to Trainspotting? I think that may have escaped my notice. Nope, yeah, same writer, same director, like 20 years later. And it doesn't suck. Right. It doesn't suck. It's a different movie, but it does not suck. We're going to talk about Christopher Nolan's film, Insomnia, which is actually a remake of a Danish movie. With the Don't get me started, Larry. Don't get me started. Don't get you started. Or you will. <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk about Heavenly Creatures from Peter Jackson. That's uh, one of the first Peter Jackson movies I've ever seen, and uh, it set the bar pretty high. <laughs> Absolutely. Really great film. Probably his all-time best. We're going to talk about Sam Raimi's film A Simple Plan, which got uh, an Oscar nomination for Billy Bob Thornton and for Best Adapted Screenplay. We're going to talk yep, about the, another interesting director. I, I I love Sam Raimi. I love Sam Raimi. He's insane, but that's part of his charm. I think we're going to talk about the game from um, David Fincher. This is another one of the classic Michael Douglas squirms at the end of a hook movies. We're going to talk. About... I didn't know it was a genre, Larry. <laughs> it it is. There's so many movies where you're going to find Michael Douglas, like Fatal Attraction or Disclosure, or just a number of movies where he's just squirming, where the audience just has to suffer <laughs> with him. And uh, this is another one of those. That sounds marvelous. Recently, Matthew and I talked about a Brad Anderson movie that was an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe. He's also responsible for Session 9, which is one of my favorite horror movies. Uh, we're going to talk about his film, The Machinist, which is sadly almost more famous for the emaciation of Christian Bale than it is for the quality of the film itself. And like I said, we're going to start with uh, Trance, the uh, Danny Boyle picture about an art heist that gets increasingly ridiculous. <laughs> 
Is there anything you would like to say about the directors, about the theme, about podcasting, about your life? Is there anything you want to get off your chest before we duck into this? Get me right to it, Larry. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. You're, you're, you're talking to me from a great distance. Uh, I appreciate your participation. Let's do it. Where is it? I can't remember. I go hit on the head. That you remember. Have you ever been hypnotized before? Whatever is in his head, she can find. Now I want you to relax, Simon. Stop. What can you make him do? Anything. Go party your plan. Two of you planning it together. She put that there. It's not real. He wants the painting for himself. I don't believe that. <laughs> Why did you lie to me? Her memory is locked in a cage. And with enough force, the lock can be broken. Elizabeth. I have something to tell you. You ready? So heist movies are a classic sort of milieu in Hollywood. Uh, and when I first heard about Trance, I guess I thought that's what we were getting. I thought we were getting a Danny Boyle heist movie. And because of my great fandom of Danny Boyle and because of a not uninteresting cast, I think James McAvoy is very able to salvage pretty rocky screenplays because of his presence and his, his acting ability. There's interesting people in the movie. There's a really great director behind the seats. So I guess my opening salvo to you is, why do you think that Trance is my least favorite Danny Boyle movie? Well, Larry, I only have to guess why I hate Trance as much as I do. I, I actually thought last night to get ready for this podcast. And I mean, Danny Boyle is always an interesting director. I like the pacing of the movie. Bright McAvoy's an interesting actor. I, I can't say I hated watching the movie, but it's terrible. And I'm sure you understand what I mean. Uh, let me just say this. Maybe the best way to explain how terrible trance is is the fact that I, I was trying last night, and I don't think I could explain this plot. I mean, we do spoilers here. That's okay. But I really don't think I could explain the plot. Whether you explain the way the story unfolds with all the twists and turns, or you try to explain it chronologically, like setting aside how it's revealed to the audience, but how the story actually happens, it's too complicated and too ridiculous, not only to believe, but even to understand. And I think you're absolutely right in that. And I think that what Danny Boyle is trying to do is drown us in style. I think he figures if... He can make this flashy enough, if he can make the edits quick enough, if he can make it dazzle enough, that we're going to get past that the screenplay is essentially a mess. This, I, I will attempt to try and tell you the plot, but but uh, here it is very roughly, okay? James McAvoy... Are you doing it in order of what we discover in the film or chronologically? I think the chronological may be simpler, but good luck. <laughs> uh, I'll just do generally to start. We can roll up our sleeves here. But at the start of the film, James McAvoy is uh, a guy who works at a museum. He's uh, 
helps to sell the uh, the art there. Uh, he curates it. It's an auction house. Yeah, he, he helps auction off the items. And because he has a gambling problem, he has agreed to help this group of thieves steal this famous work of art. First of the many really convoluted and stupid things that the uh, plot hangs on is that he suffers a head injury that causes the almost strictly for the movies symptom of amnesia, which causes him to forget where he's put the valuable painting, and he has to go see this very beautiful uh, American psychiatrist to try and unravel what happened to the painting and what's been happening to him and uh, why he's constantly struck with these feelings of deja vu and uh, feelings of displacement. And the more we find out, the less satisfying the movie becomes. I think I'm with you in that when the movie started, I was with it and into it. Okay, here's the heist movie. What's the twist? Who's the white hat? Who's the black hat? And that's not what this movie is at all. I think this is one of those really frustrating movies that thinks it's super smart, that it's going to outsmart its audience. And uh, I don't think it's successful in doing it. I think that it more aggravates than than entertains after a point it's mainly my love for danny boyle that gets it over the finish line well already though larry you were just beginning to describe only the very beginning of this convoluted plot and even in doing that you already left out several strange and inexplicable things mm-hmm. Such as the fact when the heist occurs james mcavoy goes through the procedure to safeguard the valuable painting but for some reason, and no one understands at first, the valuable painting is missing from the case that he's supposed to put it in. And meanwhile, even though he's collaborating with Vincent Castle, who's the main criminal doing the heist, he decides to attack Vincent Castle with a taser. Right. And even though Vincent Castle is supposed to be working with James McAvoy, he decides to whack him on the head really hard. Yeah. So even that beginning, and you're describing here basically the first 15 minutes of the movie is already more complicated and more inexplicable than I feel you're doing justice to it. Right. Well, I, again, I think it's this, this tactic that the movie has that it's going to constantly be bewildering us and confusing us. And uh, if it paid out on that confusion, I would be much more okay with it. My other problem, over and above the mess that is the screenplay, which we can try to untie that if you want. <laughs> I don't know how much time you have. But this is another one of those thrillers, and Danny Boyle's done this before much more successfully, for instance, Shallow Grave, where essentially there's nobody to cheer for. <laughs> there's no likable character in this movie. And that's even before the reveals happen, just by their actions and their purpose and their... The way they treat each other, there's really very few people to hang on to here. And uh, whereas a movie like Shallow Grave, the momentum sort of helped us get past that. And the level of evil that our protagonists were put up against sort of made the measure of their snarkiness seem so small by comparison that you had to cheer for them. I never found myself cheering for anybody in the movie. And that shuts the door to my engagement. Uh, this is definitely part of it, or at least it seemed that way at first. It seemed to be a movie like a Shallow Grave and like A Simple Plan, which we'll talk about later. One of those movies that assumes when enough money is at stake, everyone will become evil, everyone will become calculating. Mm-hmm. Although, as the movie unfolds, it gets stupider than that. I'm, you say you saw a lot of the twists coming. I would say I didn't foresee everything, but it's not to this movie's credit that I didn't foresee everything. 
because right. it's always possible to surprise the the viewer with something so stupid you didn't expect it. When, for example, Rosario Dawson said she'd had a boyfriend she broke up with who was really violent, I assume naturally it was Vincent Castle who's the really violent criminal, right. and not James McAvoy who's shown no signs of being violent up until now. Right. And even though I knew Rosario Dawson had some nefarious scheme, I thought she wanted to make money like everyone else. And with the game, sort of the shallow grave model. Everyone is driven mad by greed. Yeah. But really, she just wanted to have an expensive painting for the sake of having an expensive painting to, like, prove something, I guess. And so, um, I, I would also I'm, argue I'm, over and above that, Brendan, she enjoyed yeah. fucking with these guys. <laughs> I guess so, and, and that was unpredictable. I, I thought I saw it coming that, like everyone else, she was in it for the money. Yeah. But the general silliness of this movie was such that I didn't predict, or wasn't able to anticipate the ridiculous motivations of the characters. No, she's not. She's not a psychiatrist. She's a psychic. She's some kind of witch. She can literally hypnotize you, put you into a trance to make you forget large portions of your life. Which, yes, is what she did with James McAvoy. He'd, in fact, been with her in the past, become obsessed with her, and become such a problem that she'd rooted him away. But <laughs> it, 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 that is such a ridiculous thing to drop that it's it's hard to accept on, on its face. But uh, I, I, I think for me, I guess I should restate, I didn't exactly predict the specific events that were going to take place. But I've watched enough of these more thrillers to know never to trust the lady, right? Never trust the dame. Right. <laughs> so I kind of knew pretty early, I would say less than halfway through, that neither Vincent Castle <laughs> or uh, our main character was going to end up with the prize. That they were likely being manipulated by the puppet master, which was Rosario Dawson. Well, let me just ask you a question, Larry. Let's just forget about explaining the plot because we're never going to be able to. So let me just throw this question at you. So after the heist, yes. James McAvoy is sneaking away with the painting, which, and he can apparently hide this uh, expensive painting in the back of his shirt, and it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. But leaving that aside, he's running away. He gets hit by a car, and for some reason, the woman in the car, he imagines she's Rosario Dawson, who was his lover, and Rosario Dawson hypnotized him. So he strangles the woman in the car to death and hides her body in a parking garage. Why did the police do not find this woman? Why are they not looking for her? And since James McAvoy is crazy and hypnotized and out of it, why is it not very easy to find her car, find the body? I don't know. I'll scale it back even further, okay? When you're talking about a twist, if you're trying to uh, wow your audience, I've heard so many people talk to me, and we're going to talk spoilers tangentially about a different film. Everybody goes on and on about what an amazing twist The Usual Suspects contains. I take issue with it. Is it a twist if the movie just lies to you for the whole movie and then says, aha, we were lying to you? I don't know if that counts, right? Like it's, it, we had an unreliable narrator who was just making up a story that we chose to believe. To me, that's not a twist. To me, that's something that was in front of us that we didn't see. That's a twist. I would argue that neither Usual Suspects or Trance really is that great in their twists. But I would argue that The Usual Suspects is a really inter entertaining thriller over and above this. If you take away the failed twist of trance, what you've got is a pretty exploitive thriller that is beneath Danny Boyle. 
I want to talk oh. about Rosario Dawson because this is a weird thing to bring up, but this is the second time in her career that she's gone completely naked for a movie. There was this movie and there was Oliver Stone's very so-so Alexander. And in both times, the nudity was used to put her in a position of sexual power. I think Rosario Dawson's oh. a great actress. I think that she's beautiful. And I think in both cases, she was exploited terribly. Yeah, I'd say there's, 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 the misogyny in this movie is not confined to James McAvoy's character who likes to strangle women for his entertainment. It's an attitude within the movie. Just misogynistic oh, okay. sort of vibe seeps through it a little bit. Although, as far as the twisting, I have to comment on this, Larry. In many ways, this movie fails in the opposite way. It gives you all sorts of ridiculous clues to what's happened or what you're supposed to have slowly discovered when Rosario Dawson sees James McAvoy for what we think is the first time. It's really the second time she touches her throat like she's being strangled again. Right. And we have no reason to guess this at the time, but it's really obvious having gone back and looked. And again, that's stuff that you would pick up the second time once you've had that that revelation dropped for you. It's tricky. I mean... I have a lot of respect for the director, and I do think that it's energetically told, and unlike a lot of derivative thrillers, which at the end of the day, that's all this movie is, is a derivative thriller, it's it's well executed technically. I just, I do not understand what in the script spoke to Danny Boyle. I don't know why this had to be the next Danny Boyle movie. I don't know what it was about it that, that attracted him to it. Um I am kind of dislike the movie and it, it puts me in an uncomfortable place because I love Danny Boyle so much, but I can't decide if the movie is just flat out terrible or if it's my disappointment because of my fandom over Danny Boyle. I think no more needs to be said, Larry. We've given this movie all the time it deserves. <laughs> Fair enough, brother. Hey, you're sleeping on your own time. I need some help here. Have you noticed anything unusual lately? Unusual? You look like you've seen a ghost. Funny you should say that. Guys at work don't think you exist. Hey, what'd you do? (laughs) Something's happening to me, Stevie. Some kind of plot. Miller. I'm on to you, Miller. You know what revenge means, don't you? You okay? Don't I look okay? If you were any thinner, you wouldn't exist. What's wrong? I don't know. Deja vu. I need to see you now. In case something happens, I need someone to know. Hey! Hey, the breaker! Is someone chasing you? Not yet. <laughs> So two of the movies we're going to review actually deal with something that I can speak quite a bit about. Uh, Insomnia. Basically, since I was 17 or 18 years old, off and on, I will suffer from insomnia. And it's the worst. It is the worst. The I'm first really of, sorry to hear that, Larry. It's a bad one. <laughs> the, the, the first of the two movies that we're going to talk about that, that deals with this I think does a better job of at least visualizing what the sensation can be. It's called The Machinist. Uh, 
Christian Bale got all sorts of press for this movie, not because of his great performance, although I do think he gives a really strong performance, but because of the absolutely tremendous physical transformation he put himself through. Basically, for a period of almost four months, he didn't eat, and he turned himself into this emaciated skeleton in order to play this machinist who works the night shift and who cannot sleep, who is a complete shivering nightmare of an individual who is suffering hallucinations and who is so clearly manic and praised and uh, depressed and almost dangerous that he uh, basically repels anybody who gets too close to him. So why is he this way? Is he being stalked by some supernatural evil? Is there a plot to drive this man crazy? What has brought him to this terrible state? That's what this 102-minute movie is about. And I'll tip my hand and say I think it's pretty impressive. But I'm here to hear what Brendan has to say. Well, I enjoyed the exchange, Larry, but for me, this is nearly as great a disappointment as Trance was. I admire Danny Boyle, and I really admire Brad Anderson. Like you, I presume, I thought Session 9, his earlier film, was just magnificent. thought it was a really chilling piece of horror filmmaking. And so I, maybe I came to this with high expectations, and so this, this, this colors my view of The Machinist, but I thought that... Once again, this was a beautiful film, a stylish film, a well-acted film that is betrayed by a stupid screenplay with an unsatisfying twist. Maybe not a ridiculous twist, but it was deeply unsatisfying to me. Okay, well, I guess we're going to just have to disagree on The Machinist. <laughs> See, for me, I, I was enjoying the movie, I was liking the movie, but I had this little worm of worry, is that, like, what's, what's the revelation going to be? What's this movie going to turn on? What are we going to learn about this character to justify all of this insanity that we've seen? It would have to be something significant, and in my opinion, I think it paid off. I think that... Unlike Trance, I did not roll my eyes and go, Jesus, really? Is that what we're doing now? <laughs> I was like, no, that would fuck a person up. That would destroy a person psychologically. That could bring someone down to their very lowest point of, of being a, a person. And uh, it's an interesting character arc where we see somebody has to come to terms with something that they've done. And where, in order to do that, in order to get past it, it involves a bold, I guess, sacrifice on themselves. In his case, our main character uh, presumably is either going to the loony bin or to prison or both for a long time as credits roll. But for him, this is a happy ending. And I didn't find it an unhappy ending as an audience member. So, for me, the payoff worked. And that's basically what the movie's sort of loaded towards. So... Yeah, I, I also think clear, the acting is really strong, frankly. Yeah, just to be clear, so ultimately we learn the real reason Kristen Bale can't sleep and he's starving to death and it turns out he's hallucinating all sorts of other crazy things is that he's haunted with guilt by accidentally killing a little kid. Yeah. And so when he takes responsibility for this, he feels better and he can finally sleep. Yeah. He, and it's I not just that he runs over the kid, he runs over the kid and he drives away. It's a hit and run. And he's lived with it for almost a year. 
That's why he's not sleeping. That's why he can't eat. But he's sunk so low that he's forgotten the why. All he has is the symptoms. He doesn't understand the cause. And this movie is him slowly getting back to the cause and taking steps to do something about it. I, I suppose the reason the twist was disappointing to me in that it, it felt like it invalidated so much of what I had thought was going on in the film up until then, because we, we enter into the whole depraved fantasy, his nightmare, visions and paranoid fears, and it turns out it was all guilt over killing the kid, and so much that we were asked to invest ourselves in earlier in the film turns out to have been completely unreal. And again, I don't. I guess you're talking specifically. He he. There's a few people that he seems to be able to talk to. Uh, I think the most controversial one that you're probably alluding to is the waitress that he goes to this night dine this diner at night and uh, you know talks to her. But there's something strange about her. There's something familiar about her. And then we later go on to find out he's at that restaurant. And even though there is a waitress there that has been you know serving him night after night, it doesn't look anything like what the woman in his head looks like. He imagines going on a date with this woman who brings her son along because he knows these people, these faces are important to him, but he can't reconcile why. I mean, how much of his time is spent awake and how much of his time is spent asleep, I think is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, I remember getting into this discussion when we were talking about the Nightmare on Elm Street movies about the, the idea of micro-sleeps, where you're so tired that you're actually mm -hmm. kind of half asleep and half awake at the same time. And uh, it's a real hard thing to put across on film, and that's what I really want to, for me, like, as much as I do think the script is strong, I disagree with you there, the way that Brad Anderson makes us empathize and, and feel that disorientation and that craziness and that, did that really happen? Am I seeing what I'm seeing? And the exasperation and frustration that that would bring out, I mean, that all comes across crystal clear for me. Oh, it's beautiful, it's compelling, it's atmospheric. But I, I actually wasn't even thinking about the waitress so much. I was thinking what, what seems like the inciting incident, this is why to me the screenplay it feels like a fraud where it disowns itself. We're supposed to believe the inciting incident is this really creepy guy showing up at his workplace. Right. And all that turns out to be just hallucinations from guilt. Yeah. And so all of the things that emotionally I was invested in at the start of the film that I thought it was about, it turns out not to have been about. I mean, I guess he's afraid of the police getting him for other reasons. Right. He, his guilt about law enforcement is connected to to what he has hit and run accident with a child. But it felt like uh, it, it felt like in the disappointing sense, it was all a dream. Instead of feeling like the earlier events were sort of connected to his ultimate discovery of his guilt. It felt like discovering what really had happened invalidated all that. It just felt like it, it was imaginary, didn't happen. The, the thing is that I, I kind of like the character. I mean, once we know what he did, it, it, like it's a pretty hard to forgive act. But my heart goes out to him while he's suffering, while he's going through all of this, you know? And uh, mm -hmm. that, that I empathize with the character in a way I just wasn't able to with any of the characters in Trance. Uh, I think that might be a pass or fail on it too, like if you can feel for him. He inadvertently, due to like him being half asleep and incompetent, causes his co-worker, played by Canadian actor Michael Ironside, to get his left arm 
torn off in the machines. And, uh, like, he'd already been harboring all of this other guilt. And then that happened. I was so grateful for the scene where Ironside takes him aside, you know, a few months later and basically forgives him for the accident. <laughs> he had so few wins in his life that even that was a win. <laughs> Oh, or is it a win? That's just heartbreaking, though, because you feel more guilty when somebody is not willing at least to hate you when you do something wrong. Yeah, That's the hardest thing of all. No, it, it, was, it was a hard movie to watch. It was a hard movie to watch, that's for sure. I mean, this is the closest you have here to the horror genre, but even here, it, it, it packs an emotional punch. I would say that most horror films don't. Right. Um... What do you think about that physical transformation? I mean, in the interest of art, should somebody put themselves to that physical degree of danger? Not only do I not think that they should, I mean, I, I, it made it hard for me to watch the movie. It made it hard for me to see Christian Bale. And I've heard, having read about the film, that he probably did damage his body in all kinds of ways. No. You really shouldn't starve yourself that way. And he's but even said he wouldn't recommend doing that to other actors, but he felt it was something he needed to do, and he did it at the time. But, yeah, there are other better ways to go about losing the weight. It's also... And as far as I go, it was just so upsetting. It was so upsetting to see him looking like that. It made it, in a way, torture to watch the film. And I think, like, the Jennifer Jason Leigh character, he actually says that. <laughs> The, the prostitutes, it just hurts to look at you. It hurts to look at you. And that is an accomplishment. I mean, I, I would not take that away, but um, I just, I on some level, it gets a little bit irresponsible. I can, I can respect method acting, but there's a point where you kind of have to say, when, you know, I think. Well, it also, what it, what it also points to me is, what I still feel is the flaw of this film, is there's so much emphasis on atmosphere and acting and character and lighting and editing and everything basically except story. And that it's such a well-made film with, yeah, with, with not, not a great deal around it at its core. If you realize, once you know what the real storyline was, not that much happened in the film. I also wanted to mention the sort of dreamlike atmosphere of the film and how something about the production might have accidentally fed into it. Another one of the many interesting things about The Machinist is that it was a, a script that a lot of people liked but nobody wanted to make for a long time. And in order to get it made, they had to shoot it in Italy, even though it's set in Los Angeles. I so, thought it was Spain. Or Spain? Sorry. Uh, Either way, every single environment that he was in either had to be changed in some way or in some way augmented to help sell it as being in the United States, but it's not the United States. And I can't help right, but think right. that maybe that might help feed into this sort of otherworldly feel <laughs> that the movie has. That's right. When Spanish is spoken in the movie, it's always with a Castilian accent. Oh, yes. <laughs> Rather than like L.A. or whatever it's supposed to actually be. But no, I agree. Everything feels a little off. Everything feels strange. Actually, I don't think I followed Brand Anderson's filmmaking after this movie, but I, I, I certainly wouldn't say this is a movie that disappointed me in terms of following him as a filmmaker. It's just interesting to me that, like, 
obviously the people who made this movie loved it a lot. Obviously Christian Bale loved it a lot and they they, you know, <laughs> uprooted the entire production to another country in order to get it made. And at the end of the day, it was barely a blip on the radar. And it's a movie that's mainly remembered as that movie that Christian Bale got super skinny for. And uh, I personally think there's a lot more to it than a skinny Christian Bale. I think it's actually pretty strong. Is it Session 9? No. But I'm finding increasingly that few movies are. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Session 9 was something special. Um, at the very least, can we agree this is not a date movie, Larry? <laughs> It's not a feel-good number, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, right? I, I mean, all right. <laughs> uh, I like it enough to recommend it. It certainly didn't hurt my Brad Anderson sort of. Uh, uh, you seem to be getting it closer to his other film, A uh, Vanishing on Seventh Street, which I think was all style, no substance. I do think that there's some substance here, personally. All right. Well, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you, you're, you're the, you're, you're the movie maven here, Larry. You know your stuff. <laughs> Is there I'll, any... I'll defy to your judgment, or, or um, I'll, I'll, I'll give it another shot. How about that? <laughs> Fair enough. Is there anything else you wanted to say about the machinist? Uh, no, I'm good. Okay. Ah, Mr. Van Orton. Have we met? I believe so. Why are you following me? Find out about a company called Consumer Recreation Services. They won't stop, Nick. He's in on it. I paid the bill. I paid him more to make it stop. I need the police. They're gonna break into my house. I'm gonna be by a bunch of depraved children. They're trying to kill me. Who's behind this? Who did this to me? Why? This is all the game. Ah! Right now, I am extremely dangerous. You're behind the whole thing, aren't you? No! They make your life fun. So you want to hear an interesting story about the game, Brandon? Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> Once upon a time, back in the 1900s, Larry went to see the game at the Pacific Cinema in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, another one of the many theaters that no longer exists. And I was enjoying it. It's a, it was a fun thrill ride of a movie. And right, right at the end, right after the main climax of the movie took place, uh, our main character was walking outside and about to get into a car with another female character. And all of a sudden, the screen snapped black, and the, the entire theater fell silent. And some wit in the back of the room yelled, Is this part of the game? <laughs> <laughs> As a result, they had some malfunction took place. Everybody at that screening of the game got free movie passes. I was able to come back a couple weeks later and watch The Edge on the big screen. <laughs> Because even though it did the fail right right before the credits were about to uh, fall, I did manage to see all of the game. And I remember when I watched it thinking, I really like that movie, but I bet you it's kind of one of those one-time rides. It's one of those movies that works great once, but it was, you know, once you've sort of, once you know the movie, you know the movie. And I'm here to tell you that I was wrong about that, Brendan. 
because I've probably seen the movie maybe a half a dozen times now, just through circumstance, and it gets better to me <laughs> almost with each passing viewing. I think the game oh, is a lot stronger than it has any business being, and uh, I'm surprised to hear these words come out of my mouth, but uh, that's how I feel. A rich but ice-cold businessman is given a birthday present by his brother. Uh, it is access to this high-end game, which will involve them doing a lot of stress tests on you and psychological tests on you to build a game that you won't even know is happening. As he is told, the object of the game is for him to learn the object of the game. And what starts off kind of interesting and intriguing becomes increasingly sinister, increasingly dangerous, and increasingly seemingly hostile. Now, if you're like me and you have this voice screaming in the back of your head saying, forget it, there's nothing to get worried about, it's all a game, it's all a game, you are both right and wrong at the same time. Brendan, what did you think of the game? Oh, Larry, Larry, I'm just a miserable person. I'm a miserable person. I'm incapable of joy, and I ruin my, my own chance to enjoy a fine film like this. You know, David Fincher is obviously a very talented director. It's great acting here, but, but one single thing allowed me to ruin the game for myself before I even watched it. What's that? I watched this film. This is the only one of the films, actually, that I... Well, other than Trent, that I had to watch specifically for this episode of Rank and Review. I'd never seen the game before, but I'd known of it for 20 years since it came out. And even without seeing it, sometimes you talk about foreseeing the twist be, you know, early in the movie or part way through the movie. Even before I saw the movie, I said, I bet he'll think he's not in the game, but he is in the game. And it was so annoying to me that I'm supposed to be frightened for Michael Douglas when he's in all these dangerous situations. When I know the whole time it's just the game and he's fine. Yeah. Well, that's the thriller that you need to get over, I think, once you get into it. That's the movie that's the one-time ride. And that's a movie that I do think a lot of people will see coming. But I will have well, to fall back on my... Sorry, say that again, brother? Like it's even a zero time ride. It was just I couldn't feel the tension. I couldn't emphasize with Michael Douglas's rich out of touch asshole. I mean, normally such a person would be very sympathetic, but he's scared in so many of these scenes. And I know it's obviously the game, so it's hard to even get into it the first time for me. Right. Well, uh, I think that, yeah, it's all a game, it's all a manipulation, but I'm going to have to fall back on my tired old argument that it's the journey, not the destination. And for me, the movie has become, with a, more viewings, less about this game and more about this transformation of this Michael Douglas character. This guy who lives an incredibly rich, comfortable life who, uh, you know, is obsessed with control and precision, breaking that guy down, breaking him utterly, to a point that when he realizes, when the curtain goes up and he meets the great and powerful Oz, and it is all just an illusion, he's not just relieved that it's an illusion. He's grateful. I think he comes out of it a better person. <laughs> like, I know that's an old, tired Hollywood chestnut. Um... There's something haunting about the way the movie opens. It's done as if it's Super 8 film, but it's widescreen. Super 8 tends to shoot in the box. But we see uh, what's an image of a birthday party taking place. 
and Michael Douglas standing by a very stoic father who seems more interested in smoking his cigarette than the fact that he's being filmed at a birthday party. And it's really efficient in how we understand, or at least I do, where this coldness in Michael Douglas came from. And how this gift from his brother, who has recovered from drugs, uh, has uh, had his own hill to climb to sort of become a complete person, uh, gives this gift to his brother in order to, in a way, free him, to make him become a more complete person. And for me, it's the journey from that cold lizard to a real human being that makes the movie work, not... How, like, what's this mass manipulation going on? And how can this possibly make sense? Uh, if you want to pull the strings on the movie, that's, that, that'll, that'll hurt you. Because there's a line that's thrown away at the end of the movie that's supposed to be funny, but I think is completely valid. Where Sean Penn, his little brother, says, uh, that was your birthday present, and Michael Douglas offers to pay for half of it. Then this relief <laughs> falls over Sean Penn's face, because when he shows him the bill, he's like, holy shit. They would have had to have spent millions of dollars to manipulate him in this way. Like, it's that part of it is less credible. But the emotional and the character journey, I think, makes this movie worthwhile. Well, if I were more of a complete person, maybe I would feel that way. But the truth is, I'm prejudiced against Michael Douglas's character from the start. He's a rich, controlling asshole. Yep. That's certainly who he is at the start of the movie. And I have trouble putting that aside or maybe believing that him being scared in this game would, would, would make him a better person. I'm, I'm maybe most, most bothered when I think of the movie basically as a story about yeah, a rich person who has everything, does an exciting and very expensive game to make him feel better about himself. I mean, it's, it's not exactly a Christmas carol here. He doesn't learn to have compassion that he didn't have for the suffering poor of the world. He learns to live, whatever that means. Well, he just has... I hate him anyway, and that's probably on me. Yeah. He has no emotional core, it seems. There's just... Everything is held in, is held in, is held in. And you see him at the beginning of the movie, you know, if he gets ink on his t-shirt, on, on his dress shirt, you know, that wrecks his whole fucking day, right? He's very short with people who work for him well but right it seems to me then like another case of of some rich asshole saying well i used to be uptight but i got to play the game and now i feel better i mean this is like him being able to do an expensive spa that you or i could never afford larry <laughs> he had the game inflicted upon him and it was some tough love because if even if you don't like this character even if you still see him as like the Wall Street image of greed, which he has a hard time shaking. Um, when he gets to his lowest point and he's in that diner, like wearing borrowed clothes and begging for a ride back home, and he is completely humbled, I, I, I picture him if he was the old Michael Douglas character at the beginning of the movie, if he was a patron in that restaurant. Not only would he not listen to the man who came in begging for a ride, he would be vaguely disgusted by him. And the only way for him to not be vaguely disgusted by that guy is to walk a mile in that guy's shoes. <laughs> and uh, he suffers. He, he doesn't get out of this scot-free. I guess I can see what you're saying in that, like, you, you resent the Scrooge angle, that this guy was rich and miserable, and now he'll be rich and happy thanks to some 
amazing intervention, right? Yeah, the game didn't make him a better person. It made him more relaxed, more chill. It's like he's able to afford, like you and I will never be able to afford to take six months off work where we go hiking in Peru or something like that. Right. Well, it may it's be a, harsh, it's, but it, it's, it's unfortunate it's a, that he fought the character in that experience. way. I mean, I guess I went with it because I want, I liked it. I'll go with you some of the stuff that I do think is ridiculous, which is sort of the scale of the game. I think that they could have played that back a little bit. Um, when he gets put in the back of a ambulance and driven to what looks like the base of a hospital, and then all of a sudden it all empties out. It was all artifice. There were hundreds of extras. There was a guy who you know, allowed medical procedures to be operated on upon him, all just as a show for Michael Douglas. That's not super credible. The way that they set it up for when he finally fights his way, quote, to the back to the game, and he keeps on passing people that he's seen before. I know it's supposed to be done as a revelation, but I think that I would have preferred that we know the game was doing this intentionally, so that we just kept on feeding the illusion for him. He believed that it was a scam. He believed he was being stolen from, and that these were all part of the that operation. And... Uh, it's a little bit too big to make 100% sense, but I was never, I never threw up my hands and said the hell with it. You know, I was, I went with it. Well, maybe I'm just viewing this in, in the entirely, entirely the wrong way, Larry, but I, I threw up my hands and said the hell with this all the time. So, so again, this is, this is, this is supposed to be done for his benefit. This is a company and their, their business model is already questionable when you realize the cost of putting on the game. But, but I'm thinking of the time when he's in the taxi and he's locked inside the taxi and the taxi driver drives the taxi really fast towards the water and then leaps out of the moving car. And first of all, the risk to the taxi driver is one thing, you know, because he's jumping out of the moving car into traffic. But then he shoots Michael Douglas in the car. He shoots into the water and the car is submerged in the water. Yeah. Now we hear there later that there were divers all around him to be sure he was okay. But really? Yeah. Really? He's, he's down underwater in this car. A million things could go wrong. He could die in a million different ways. And so, that's the uh, kind of stuff that you kind of try not to fight. What about the end how of... Much do you, how much do you get sued, Larry, when somebody that rich, when you kill somebody that rich by accident? <laughs> the game business model was really giving to me. They put that gun in his hand that was super well hidden in his room that had blanks in it, right? And they were counting on him to jump off the building at the end. But what if instead of jumping off the building, he'd put the gun in his mouth, right? There's a lot of things that they could have that could have gone wrong that just didn't. Like, and that's a complaint that I would definitely hear. Like, the game is executed perfectly. Nothing goes rocky for the game. <laughs> like everything. Or what if he jumped off the other side of the building? <laughs> yeah, like the one uh, where they didn't have a giant. Um, um, yeah, Airbag. What have you there to catch him when he jumped off? Here's another fun fact for you, though. After he does that epic fall through the glass and lands into the the whatever airbags to s save his life, uh, there's medics right there with him to make sure he hasn't had a heart attack or isn't landed badly. <laughs> and one of the medics is played by Spike Jones. Oh, all right. The filmmaker, Spike Jones, is basically the guy who's resuscitating him and calming him down and basically, you know, waking him up to the fact that this is a huge birthday party and his fall through the ceiling was his entrance to his great birthday party. 
yeah, it's a it's ridiculous in the size of the game and the spectacle, but I think that in that whole reshaping of uh, the the Mr. Scrooge story angle works for me. If the if the you know it makes more sense that spirits are doing it than it be like this crazy expensive game. But I think that the same sort of thing is accomplished here. We see somebody who was, you know, in not a good place become changed through the story to being in a better place. And that works for me anyway. Well, the difference I still have to say, is I don't want to plug this. Scrooge, he, this is the difference between our time and Dickinson. Scrooge learns to care about other people. Michael Douglas learns to feel better about himself. It's this self-centered, yuppie, self-actualization, replacing the generous love of others, the warm charity that we would get from a Christmas Carol-type conversion. Right. What about certain beats of it? Did you find any of it kind of creepy, vaguely? The first night when he gets home and that clown is laying on the drive right way, much, I imagine, like where his father ended up after jumping off the roof. Or the way they have the news program that he's always watched. The anchor of the program starts saying his name and talking to him. I'm not quite sure how that happened. I mean, again, I'm a horrible person, Larry. I spoiled it for myself. I was just annoyed the entire time. All right. This is is probably why I'm a terrible guest. (laughs) But no, let me see. I'll tell you my favorite part. You don't have to... I'll tell you my favorite part. What's your favorite part? Why Spike, Spike Jones and the other medics were so concerned that he might be cut by some of the glass when he jumped through all of those panes of glass in his fall that's miraculously... He could have cut himself so many times going through that glass in the first place because it's apparently real glass. He's already cut up. He's already injured. He's been buried alive, and now they're worried about shards cutting his face. Uh, I, I don't know. I, like, I assumed it would have been breakaway glass, <laughs> but uh, like, I assumed this was all painstakingly manipulated by the game. But again, I guess I went with the movie and you did not. I mean, if, you, if you're going to fight the movie, and I think this is true of all movies, but definitely something like this. If you're going to fight the premise, you'll win. All right? The movie will lose. <laughs> all right. Well, that's good enough for me, Larry. Thanks oh, for indulging me. Fair enough. I want my share. Plan was to sit on the money oh, till we on, decide man. that it's on. safe to keep. It's like there's two sides now. We're all in this together, man. You had to pick right now. Who to be? You, you're my brother. From now on, we have to be thinking ahead all the time. There's someone who's been properly trained. There are many ways to detect a liar. You're just a normal guy, a nice, sweet, normal guy. They're gonna know! No, they won't! You think you can take us out there? Can you tell us what this is all about? Looking for a plane? I'm taking the money back right now! You gotta get out of there. Everything okay? He's gonna shoot all three of you as soon as he sees the plane. Don't move! We gotta make this look like it was an accident. They're not gonna take me away, are they? We're the ones who need that money! He just wants it! Put the gun down! Shake ya! Well, I'm trying to come up with a plan! Don't turn your back! So a simple plan had been kicking around for a while. A lot of different directors had come and been attached and walked away from it. John Borman at one point, Ben Stiller at one point, if you can believe that. But fate dictated that it land in the hands of Sam Raimi. 
And a lot of people at the time thought that, you know, coming from a source novel that was, you know, so psychologically complex, why do you give that to the director of Darkman and Evil Dead 2, right? Well, Sam Raimi, as much as he enjoys his cult status, I think has always sort of tried, wanted to prove himself in other arenas as well. Yeah, I can do crazy, over-the-top, bombastic movies, but I can also do, you know, a legit thriller. And he made two of them back-to-back in the late 90s. One of them was The Gift. The other one is the one we're going to talk about, A Simple Plan. I'm in the minority. I think that The Gift is the better of the two two movies, but I do really like A Simple Plan as well. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, and Billy Bob Thornton was nominated for an Oscar for playing. He's got some kind of uh, psychological illness. I don't know if he was mildly autistic or if it's just like a personality disorder, but... He seems to have a real hard time interacting in the world. He and his brother, played by Bill Paxton, and their friend are out chasing Fox in this winter wonderland when they stumble upon a plane crash. And in that plane, they find a bag with over $4 million in it. And they decide to keep it, and that decision destroys their lives. (laughs) That's basically the movie. Uh, What do you think of A Simple Plan? I say that I'm not sure if this is what the production company was thinking, the producers were thinking in attaching Sam Raimi to this film, but this is a story that already sounds uh, reminiscent of the Coen brothers even before you add the fact that it's set in rural Minnesota. Right. And so having casting a director who is a longtime friend and collaborator of the Coen brothers is an interesting choice. And... I think that Sam Raimi really elevates this material because I mean, this, I'm not sure about the source novel, but the screenplay seems pretty silly to me. But Sam Raimi has fun with it, and it's it's a silly movie, but it's it's a fun movie. It's entertaining. Although I agree with you, Larry, I like The Gift even more. That was quite an astounding film that Sam Raimi pulled off. This one is a lot of fun to watch every time I've seen it. I think what we have here is that the actors conquered that screenplay. Um, for me, it's such a familiar premise in that, like, I I go into it not expecting any good to come of this money. I go into expecting their friendships to be destroyed, expecting for betrayal and death to call, fall through, right? There's a laid out map to this type of story. Uh, yep. I think what makes it work is that unlike Trance we were talking about, I somehow managed to kind of like these characters. And that's no small feat because they start doing increasingly terrible things. But there's something about the late great Bill Paxton that uh, he, he somehow manages to stay at least minimally sympathetic throughout the, throughout the movie. And uh, that was the main difference to me, because there was a point where it went too far, and it's pretty early in the movie. But once he's made that sacrifice, once he's smothered a guy to keep this secret, he, once you make that step, that leads to another step, which leads to another step, which leads to your damnation, right? So yeah, I like quite right, Larry. This is this is the director's real triumph there, because I I, I even felt sympathy for Billy Bob Thornton's character who is inexplicably awful throughout the movie if you actually break down what he does. But but thanks to his performance and the way that Sam Raimi puts that out of him, I don't feel surrounded by awful people that I hate. 
Yeah. You the decisions, I guess, however full of folly they may or may not be, seem to make sense within the given scene, I guess. Bill Paxton, uh, well, this is just a little nerdy note on Bill Paxton, but he was killed by a Terminator, a Predator, and an alien. Fun, all right, fun all right. Fact. So, um, well, this is this is he, he doesn't die in this film, but I mean, I, I know his career was cut short. He died tragically just a couple of years ago. But with that accomplishment, being involved in those three franchises, like that dude is immortal. <laughs> so it he doesn't usually headline a movie. He's almost always a supporting player, and it was kind of nice to see him. It was kind of nice to see him run the ship here, and he does a good job. Like I said, another actor, and I don't feel if I don't feel sympathy for these brothers, this movie sucks, frankly. Like then I become sort of your your review of the game, where I'm just like, why do I care if something bad happens to these guys? Right? Um, we I I find that that I even I even enjoy the minor characters. I even enjoy Bill. I like Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton's loser friend as well, actually. Right. There's nothing. There's no reason we should. I find that even the minor characters, even the sort of loser redneck friend of Bill Paxman and Billy Bob Thornton, comes off as very likable in the film as well. And you believe him? Important. I can't remember the name of the actor, but uh, yeah, he's he's sort of a redneck. He's kind of an alcoholic. He's got some hard bark on him, but you understand the decisions he makes, and you understand why he gets. Uh, Furious with the brothers, you know. I wouldn't quite go that far because for me, the problem with the screenplay is that you can see the strings being pulled in all the stupid decisions that everybody makes at uh, every turn. Whether it's Billy Bob Thornton inexplicably deciding to murder someone who seems a little bit suspicious of them, all the way along, you're you're, you're you feel like they're doing this because it has to be that kind of movie. Yeah. They're doing this. Because it's one of these movies where dark deed piles upon dark deed to a terrifying conclusion. So I wouldn't quite say I believe they do it, but I always like them, I care about them, and the actors seem so real, I forget that the story isn't real. Yeah. And the it, it's the execution. The directing and the acting kind of makes you forget that you've seen this before. Whether it's been in this movie, you've seen it in some episode of television or in some other movie. This idea of this this secret that destroys a group of friends. I wanted to spend a little bit of time on Bridget Fonda. Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, she was the one character who I never liked for whatever reason. Like uh, she seems painfully normal. She's the small town librarian, but. She seems to, you know, be the Lady Macbeth <laughs> to the Paxton character. He's like, uh, she's encouraging his worst instincts, and she wants that money. She wants that money more than any of the rest of them. Um, and this is one of the, again, one of the tail end roles for Bridget Fonda. She kind of gave up acting not long after this movie. And I thought, you know, she was interesting. She wasn't just one of these people who you know, got to be an actress because she was an actress. I think she had some some goods. It wasn't just because, you know, she had a famous mom. She could she could act. I kind of uh, miss her now that she's not around. I, I was never fussy about her when she was around, but I keep on bumping into her doing rank and review and thinking, it's too bad Bridget Fonda threw in the towel. Yeah, I, I just had to add, you, 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 you were 
really correct what you say that a simple plan. We've seen this story before. That's even more true of The Gift, don't you think, Larry? It's a great film, but I think we've, we've had more than our share of movies where a psychic helps avenge a murdered person. That's true. I get, again, a lot to for, for cast and execution. For some reason, this was the one that got all the awards attention. And again, I sound like I'm being negative on a simple plan. I actually do really like the movie. Uh, oh, yeah. it, it's just, it's familiar. There is something very familiar about it. But this is this is the difference between, you know, an A cast and an A director. I, I, again, if, you know, if Ben Stiller directed it and he cast Jack Black, who knows? Maybe, maybe it would have been a debacle or maybe it would have been a hilarious comedy all of a sudden, you know? That's right. I've seen this film, I think, three times now, and I enjoy it every time. I care about the characters every time. And it's actually a compliment to say that it probably is a very tired and somewhat implausible screenplay, because what we're really saying is that these people could probably make anything entertaining. Well, I mean, Billy Bob's been in bad movies. (laughs) Sam Raimi's not everything he's made is amazing, you know. But it's interesting in that, like, it's not over the top at all. In fact, if anything, it's restrained. You don't see those zipping camera pans or the hyper-editing that you're used to seeing from the old-school Raimi. He's very interested in telling this story in as composed and uh, deliberate way as possible. And in doing that, he tries to put the camera in the best place to tell the story at the right time, you know? It's not about overcoming the audience with style like i said accused danny boyle of doing to get us through trance he's not worried about the screenplay he thinks the screenplay is going to do the job for him so he's just going to help it with every way every way he can which makes me wonder what would happen if this was a truly amazing screenplay (laughs) then you might have had the maltese fox in or, or the maltese falcon or the treasure of the sierra madre or something like that you know this is sort of a mini version of that and yeah, I think the reason it got greenlit was because Fargo was successful and they thought they could maybe spin this like a mini Fargo. And I'm so glad that Sam Raimi leaned against that. You know, uh, I love Fargo, but Fargo is Fargo, you know. <laughs> well, that's right. Um, I agree that all of these actors, this director, they can all be, be they can all perform badly as easily as perform well. But on this particular movie, they brought their A game. And you're right that it's almost a pity to imagine what would have happened if, if all of them were there at this particular moment in their careers with what they had to give, and they'd been given a truly outstanding screenplay to work with, too. Yeah. Um, and you know the movie's working when sort of peripheral characters, the, they matter to you all of a sudden? When that sheriff, who seems a little bit nosier than he needs to be, and a little bit, there's just something off about him, like he he seems to stress out our characters when he walks with that phony FBI agent towards the the plane. And you know, this guy's life is winding down. You, you feel for him. You're like, that sucks. You've done nothing wrong. (laughs) You know, in another movie that, that death wouldn't have meant anything. And it kind of counted here. That's absolutely right, Larry. That's absolutely right. It's, um, it's, it's, too rare that, that you can milk a sympathy out of a character, not because of anything they've done, because of what they haven't done. Right. The character hasn't really been developed, but he didn't do anything wrong. And if you believe him enough, that's enough to make his death heartbreaking. So that brings me to the sort of end, end that I wanted to talk about. 
the speech Billy Bob Thornton gives. Yet another pile of bodies has formed in front of them, and his brother is trying to come up with another story so that they can get through it. And he basically says he can't do it anymore. He doesn't want to lie anymore. He doesn't want the money anymore. He wants to be one of the bodies in the snow. I don't know. I think that was the hardest sell of the whole movie. Billy Bob Thornton is a great actor and he helped to sell it, but both his speech and his brother's response to it, I found difficult to accept. Well, um, I would actually say that it's the unmotivated killing earlier on, which was the strangest thing he did. If I'd murdered somebody the way he did, if I'd done all the strange and inexplicable things he did up to that point, I'd feel pretty bad about myself, too. Um, what's your problem with it, Larry? Just at this point, as far as he knows, we're going to have that other thing where they find out some of the bills have actually had the serial numbers taken from them, so he can't spend the money without being caught. Right. At this point, they could go home and, as far as he knows, keep the money. All he has to do is keep his brother's mouth shut. And the one true thing that we've known that like about the Bill Paxton character throughout the movie, no matter how shitty he's become, is that he protects and loves his brother. And he shoots his brother dead. No, I thought you were talking about Billy Bob Thornton wanting to die. Yeah, yeah, that speech. I get. I get. I mean, it's motivated, but him pulling the trigger on it, him like not just saying, "Look, you feel that way now, but you won't feel that way a few days from now." The fact that he does it, he just it it didn't seem in keeping with the character that we'd established, or else it suggested that he actually was much more evil than his countenance portrayed was was portrayed. No, I. I understand what you're saying there, Larry. This is what I was referring to earlier with Trance when I said that it's one of these movies that assumes that once enough money is at stake, people have no moral bottom. Yeah, I Same just didn't believe Jeff he'd Brady. shoot his brother. I guess when it comes down to it, I didn't believe he'd shoot his brother. I might believe his brother would shoot himself or like put a may put himself in a position where where he gets killed in order to do with it but i just i didn't for some reason that didn't sit well with me i don't think it's supposed to sit well with you but at the it end as he's burning that that money in the fireplace and his wife is screaming for some reason like i maybe it's just because i love bill paxton i just still felt for bill paxton and by that point there was no reason for me to feel for bill paxton anymore in fact uh, it should be a happy ending <laughs> you know like yeah, don't kill people. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> You're supposed to be happy because an evil man has received his just desserts. Yeah. But no, well, that's why the movie works, though, because all the way through, I still want Bill Paxton to be able to get the money and spend it. Yeah, and that's so essential very... for making it work, I think, is that we have to want them to get the money, too. I think everybody has that dream about how it would be awesome to find a big bag of money somewhere. <laughs> Wouldn't that right. be nice if you were just walking along and a huge suitcase just fell out of the sky, landed in front of you, and it was full of money? But uh, that never happens. And if it does, there's usually some complication. Oh, true words were never spoken, Larry. Domia. Killing changes you. It's like awareness. Who am I speaking to? Can't sleep well. He will taunt you. You and I 
I share a secret. We know how easy it is to kill somebody. He will torment you. Can't be easy after three days of no sleep. Are you seeing things yet? And those little tricks of light. He will get inside your head. There's a ferry about five miles north of Night Mute. I'll be on 11 o'clock. I have great respect for your profession. But this situation isn't yours to control, Will. You try to impress me, Finch. You had the wrong guy. It took you 10 minutes to beat Kate Connell to death. There's no evidence that I killed Kay. You only know it because I told you. Are you doing okay? I mean, you haven't been sleeping much, Detective Dormer. Another night up like this and you're really going to lose it. Now the game has turned deadlier than he ever imagined. This whole thing you're doing ain't going to work with me. Hold it! Where is she, Finch? Like so many uh, American thrillers that are set in Alaska, this movie was shot in Canada. It's cheaper. It's better. <laughs> uh, Christopher Nolan decided he was going to do a remake. Norwegian. Norwegian film. Thank you. Um, called a, Insomnia. A film about a Swedish police officer. That's right. Uh, it, it's about a murder case in, in a small town in Alaska that they inexplicably call in some Los Angeles police officers to help deal with the case. They're not used to cases of this severity, I guess. But why it would be... Well, I guess the guy knew... One of the characters knew Al Pacino in some related way. Anyway, Al Pacino and his partner show up in this Alaskan town that... Uh, it's the part of the year where the sun barely sets. It's basically light all day long. Al Pacino's character has all of these internal affairs investigations brewing on him. And he and his partner have tension between him because his partner has agreed to testify against him in, in the investigation. So there's a lot of character set up getting into this. Um, and what you think you're getting with Insomnia is your sort of classic serial killer, let's find the ingenious psychopath movie. But the movie is much more about the main character that Al Pacino plays and uh, the producer of the movie, Steven Soderbergh, said it's less of a whodunit than a whydunit. We know that Al Pacino accidentally shoots his partner, but Sully comes to believe that he did it on purpose. But we have to sort of find out why. We know that the Robin Williams character killed this girl, but we have to slowly find out why. And uh, the two characters become sort of strangely reliant on each other. They are, as a, you know, every cliched cop movie would say, two sides of the same coin. And that's the good and bad about Insomnia to me. I think it's a movie full of great acting and great scenes, but just adds up to an okay movie. I know that doesn't sound like it makes sense, but that's where I begin with Insomnia. Well, yeah, this is, this is a hard movie to review because I, I don't think it's a terrible movie. There's a lot going for it, as you say, and... And I always just imagine this, this this being bookended between the tremendous memento, Christopher Nolan's tremendous memento, and the Dark Knight trilogy on the other side, both of which I love. So I don't really want to criticize Insomnia, but at the same time, it really suffers in comparison from the Norwegian film from which it was adapted. That original Norwegian Insomnia is such a marvelous film. And even apart from that, 
Christopher Nolan's adaptation, that's where my rant has to come in. Christopher Nolan's adaptation exemplifies everything that is wrong with how Americans adapt popular culture from other countries. You're going to have to help me with this because uh, I, I think I saw the original, but like in 1997, <laughs> like years ago. Uh, as far as I remember, it, the, the events of the movie were closer, but the cop character was much darker. Well, yeah, here's the basic problem, Larry, and you see it too if you just compare the American office to the British office, or the many failed attempts to adapt faulty towers for American television, is that there's a fear in American pop culture of making the central character not likable. The plot of the two films at first is very similar, but they diverge in Norwegian and American version based on the fear in the Christopher Nolan production that we're not going to like the main character. I mean, it can, so it can be a simple thing. In both cases, uh, the detective is trying to fake uh, the firing of a gun. So in the American version, Al Pacino goes into an alleyway, he finds a dead dog and shoots the dead dog, so then you know the bullet's gone through flesh and he can fake his forensic evidence. In the Norwegian version, he shoots a living dog. Right. In the American version, a high school student, young woman, starts coming on to Al Pacino's cop character, and he wants nothing to do with it. In the Norwegian version, he puts his hand up her skirt. So the cop's just a lot sleazier. Yeah. Catherine but, Isabel but played that part in, the, in this American version. She's a great absolutely. Canadian actress. She's very strong in the role. She held her absolutely. own against Pacino, for sure. Absolutely. But the problem is that as the story goes on, the fact that they want to make the the, the, the uh, cop played by Al Pacino in the American version more likable and upstanding actually does lead to major changes in the storyline. In the Norwegian one, he really does cooperate with the killer in a way that he never does in the American version. Right. He does become an unwitting pawn of the killer. In the American version, Al Pacino really doesn't go along with Robin Williams, doesn't help him, and saves Hillary Swank from him. He, 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 his female cop partner becomes the damsel in distress. Right. In the Norwegian version, the female cop partner figures out. She manages to solve the crime despite the incompetence and corruption of her partner. And the film ends not with her being rescued by him, but her saying to him, I know what you did. And he just has to live with his feeling of shame at what a horrible person he is. Was, uh, Hillary Swank's character was interesting to me, too. She was both confident, competent enough that made me wonder, like, why, why did they need the help from an outside agency? Uh, and she was also constantly so always right and on the ball. Like, I don't know. I, I, I found it less credible. Like, she was following the cues from the screenplay more than common sense. I don't think that the cop knee-jerk reaction to thing is that it was a, 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 usually a police shooting. The cops usually believe the bad guy shot the cops. You know, that's their default position. Uh, right. Her character... Pacino's partner gets killed in the mist. That's right. Uh, what I liked about how they played it there, I think that they made a real point in showing us that it was an accidental shooting. We see that, but the Al Pacino character doubts it. I thought that was really strong. When he's asked towards the end of the movie about the shooting, he says he doesn't know anymore if it was an accident. 
That's interesting because in the American Insomnia, the reason he even second guesses himself, even though it seems like he accidentally shot his partner, is that he was in the middle of a long process with internal affairs where his partner was going to show that he'd faked evidence. And in consequence of this, not only would he suffer personal, professional embarrassment, but all these cases would open up and all these criminals who he framed or used tainted evidence against would go free. Yeah. And it goes back to sort of the Cape Fear thing and that like he was like, this guy was a pedophile or a rapist and he he was going to get away if we didn't find some evidence. And I knew he was guilty, right? But I I, I think what you're saying is the original was sort of gray versus gray and the remake is closer to black versus white, right? Well, you know what, this is interesting. This is maybe the biggest difference of all right at the beginning. So in the American version, Al Pacino shoots his partner by accident in the fog and later doubts why he might have done it because maybe he did shoot him on purpose to cover up uh, his own cover-ups. In the Norwegian version, there's actually no doubt about why he did it. Well, it was an accident shooting his partner, and he doesn't tell anyone because he was embarrassed. Right. It's but once innocent and deeply pathetic. It, it, it actually culminates in a story where he's talking to the sympathetic hotel owner, the Swedish cop up in the north of Norway, where he talks about when he was uh, seven years old, his twin brother died. He got sick, he died, and he just kept lying to the kids about how his brother was off on some vacation somewhere. And the lie grew more and more ridiculous from year to year, and the longer it went on, the, the harder it was to break it. And basically, that's all that's going on with his having shot his partner. He just can't admit it, and the longer he can't admit that he accidentally shot his partner, the more he has to make up a ridiculous chain of evidence, the more he has to let the killer blackmail him. And so there's a far cry from Al Pacino, who's given a really solid sort of moral reason that yeah. he might have wanted to kill a partner. Al Pacino is conflicted, he's torn, whereas the original cop character is just pathetic. Right. Um, I've spent some time on the show talking about Robin Williams, and one of the things that I really respect about his portrayal of this killer is that it's in no way over the top. It's not what you imagine when you close your eyes and picture Robin Williams playing a psycho killer. In fact, I think his normalcy is what makes the performance kind of creepy. There's a matter of factness about him. Uh, he knows that he fucked up, but he also knows that Al Pacino fucked up, and uh, he kind of knows that these he's the only person he can talk to about it. These two guys kind of only have each other <laughs> to, to burden each other's secrets with. Um, but he doesn't twirl his mustache. He's not even sort of bringing the silent menace of like Kevin Spacey in Seven. He's just a dude who has made some bad decisions, which involve murder. <laughs> And I kind of admired the restraint there. I think it worked. I I agree. It, um, I would say he, he he lays on the creepy a little thick. I I, I two I'm in two thirds agreement with you. There okay. isn't mustache twirling. There isn't menace. But 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 he gets a little uh, a little excited talking about his exploits. He, he seems creepier than a regular guy to me. Right. But he, I, I guess he's playing it normal. He may not feel villainous. Put it this way. He doesn't feel evil, but he does feel kind of yucky. Yeah. 
there's a matter of factness to him. Like, uh, again, most people don't think of themselves as, as evil people, even if they're doing evil deeds, right? So he just sort of thinks of himself as kind of a guy with some issues, you know? I don't know. I thought it was That's an interesting take. I'm going to put it, Larry. <laughs> I, uh, I also had to talk about the insomnia thing again, because uh, Al Pacino's character is getting progressively more and more exhausted through the movie, where, again, much like in The Machinist, some of the stuff he sees, you start to question. He starts seeing his partner showing up in places, and he almost drives his car off of the road. And it gets to the point where at the end of the movie, when it really looks like he's succumbing to a, a mortal gunshot wound, he doesn't mind so much as long as he can sleep as long as he can close his eyes this will be a win and there's something about working on that ragged edge and maybe that's me because i've i've spent a lot of time there i i kind of appreciate them trying to bring that across i think that the machinist maybe did a better job of visualizing it but it definitely comes through on al pacino's character that he is at the ragged end yeah, it, it certainly his performance is very good. I wouldn't give Christopher Nolan as much credit. I think his main device is simply to rely on the fade to white. Yeah. And then the odd hallucination. It's not the sort of tour de force Brad Anderson gave us, just giving that sense of not knowing whether you're asleep or awake. Right. Yeah, I guess it's a very conventional film in many ways compared to what we see with Christopher Nolan before and afterwards. Yeah, there's a very, there's, he's not messing with the timeline. There's not, it's not a particular sort of flashing dash to it. It is a fairly familiar cops and robbers story. And like I said, if the idea of exploring a killer and a cop who are two sides of the same coin makes you roll your eyes, it's still going to make you roll your eyes. I don't think they get over that hump in this movie. That's why I think it's a good movie, not a great one. It's just that when you see a movie directed by, you know, Christopher Nolan, based on a classic film with this cast, you kind of maybe expect it to be great. And that it lands on good makes it maybe seem like less than it actually is. I think the movie's beautiful. I think it's shot gorgeously and that the locations are gorgeous. And uh, there's a lot to admire in it. But in the end, we, like I've said with A Simple Plan, we've just seen this movie before. We've seen it before. Yes, in this case, literally. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm not even talking about the remake. I mean, uh, again, I barely remember the original film, but this idea of these two people fighting each other, you know, that are practically the same person. We've seen it in Heat. Oh. I talked about it recently, you know, with another Al Pacino performance. They're not exactly reinventing the wheel here. I wonder what it was. Probably it was the darkness of the cop character that made that original one interesting. And by stripping that out of it, it just kind of made this another cop movie. And I think it was trying to be more than that. It's a good cop movie, but I don't know that it distinguished itself. Certainly, Christopher Nolan is still trying, trying, to, trying to do something more reminiscent of Memento, which he's just finished. And so, again, the biggest change from the original we see right at the start, we have that uh, opening scene at first we can't see what's happening but we realize that it's Al Pacino altering evidence right. faking DNA evidence on his cases and he wanted to have that element that noirish element like we're calling say touch of evil or something like that the element of a classic noir of morally compromised characters and if you told him it was a typical cop movie 
a typical cop serial movie, killer movie, I think he'd be very disappointed. That's how it comes across to me. (laughs) I don't know. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. Is there anything else you wanted to say about insomnia? Nothing other than that, as you just said, this is an, another unfortunate case of an outstanding director out of their best. Mrs. Reaper, may I come in? Juliet's been behaving in a rather disturbed manner. Yvonne hasn't been herself either. Your daughter appears to have formed a rather unwholesome attachment to Juliet. I think I'm going crazy. It's everyone else who's bonkers. The true story of a friendship that knew no bounds. You're only 14. You're a child. Your mother is rather a miserable woman. Isn't she? The crime that shocked a nation. And a mystery that continues to this day. Heavenly Creatures. So, let's talk about the best movie of this bunch. Wow, Larry, that's bold. Very bold. (laughs) Heavenly Creatures. I don't hate it, too. (laughs) You don't hate this one. I know you don't hate this one. Heavenly Creatures is about the true story of a case of matricide that took place in in New Zealand. Uh, Two girls who... uh, seem to fall madly in love with each other. Their, their, their close friendship seems to spark a madness within each of them. I think arguably that the Julia, uh, sorry, the, the Kate Winslet character uh, was already a little bit crazy when things started, and that, yeah, definitely both of them had a few issues, but for some reason the two of them finding each other creates this perfect storm of madness which spirals and spirals and spirals and finally culminates in this tragic, tragic act. It's a true story, and it's told from a young, hungry Peter Jackson. And it allows him to use all of his manic craziness and visual flourish to its full capacity, and it allows him to use his uh, gift for character and emotional depth to full capacity. I will argue that he has not made a better movie than this since. Not that he's made nothing but bad movies since then, and I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings movies, but I think that this remains his masterpiece. I think that it's enthralling, it's entertaining, and at the end quite horrifying. And just not a movie you can compare to anything else. I would say with every other movie on this list, I can say I could compare it to something. It's this movie means that movie, or it's a different version of this. Heavenly Creatures is and shall forever be Heavenly Creatures. And for that, it demands to be watched. Absolutely, Larry. I I don't think I could uh, agree more. I I love, with the exception of the lamentable Hobbit trilogy, (laughs) I've loved everything Peter Jackson and his collaborator, screenwriter, friend Walsh have done. And I agree that this remains their masterpiece. Although, as far as whether you can compare it to anything else, this is really, in a sense, what I like most about it. You, you were talking earlier about whether you'd call these um, horror or thriller, but the thing that I love about Heavenly Creatures, what, what makes it so remarkable to me, is it does fit a certain genre, in a sense, in that it's maybe the one film more than any other, the one film made in my lifetime, 
that recalls how Aristotle describes tragedy in the poetics. Because um, although there are certain things he also talks about, of the types of character sets of events in tragedy, at the heart of his account, Aristotle's account of the poetics, tragedy is about a feeling. He says it's a feeling of a mixture of pity and horror. I think you used the word horror a moment ago, right, yeah. Larry? Yeah. You said this film is horrifying at the end. Absolutely. And anything that you, Yeah, absolutely horrifying ending. And anything that you can make you feel horror mingled with pity at the same time, this remarkable blend of emotions has got to be something really special. And that's what Heavenly Creatures does for me. Yeah. Well, and... It is the, the, uh, such the accomplishment of the movie that we understand everybody's perspective so perfectly. When we get to that ending sequence and the two girls are walking down that path with the, with the one girl's mother, and we know where this is leading. And we know, like, the mother's happy. She feels like things are getting better and she's in a good place. And we know that the Kate Winslet character is absolutely terrified but committed. And we know that the Melanie Linsky character is almost enthusiastic in her position about this murder. And watching it all play out is this waking nightmare. <laughs> and we've seen it. We've, we've, we've taken an hour and a half of the movie to get to this point. We've seen them go from being giddy girls who uh, are maybe outsiders at school, but find each other who have rich imaginations. They start by writing a romantic sort of fantasy novel and they end up basically living within it where we will see these girls dancing with these clay figures that they've created and uh, inventing an imaginary world that is so more so much more real and much more powerful to them than the real world that it does eventually take over and without the screen of you know knowing that this was just all an invention that this is all just a Hollywood invention knowing that this is a real case and that both of those women are sucking the free air today, it, it gives the movie real power. It doesn't feel exploitive. It feels like we've explored this, uh, the psychological depth of these characters to a percentage that I can't think of another movie that, that does. We understand why that murder happens. It's still horrifying, well, right. but we understand it. We've explored it with them, and this is a secret. This is why you feel both pity and horror you feel pity because even at their worst point even when they're at their worst you feel pity for the characters you feel compassion for the characters even the murderers and you feel horror for aristotle you feel horror because you can imagine yourself doing the same thing in their shoes you understand why kate winslet and Melanie linsky have come to this point why they've committed this terrible murder yeah. And it's that connection that Peter Jackson lovingly builds with the characters. It makes it so beautiful and terrible. And we don't hate the mother. We understand why the mother has been so strict with Melanie We understand why she thinks that separating the two of them was maybe a good idea. We understand why she was worried. And, you know, when her daughter asks her to go for this walk and, and is unaccustomedly polite and nice to her, you can see it warms her heart. It feels like, okay, maybe I haven't lost my relationship with my daughter, and maybe things are going to be okay. And no, a few minutes from now, your daughter's going to bludgeon you to death with a brick. It's brutal. Yeah, uh, it's, it's part of the achievement of Fran Walsh in researching this story and understanding it, that she 
was able to see it. I probably wouldn't have been able to see that these two young women who committed this terrible murder weren't necessarily bad people. They were troubled kids. It was a difficult point in their life, but they weren't necessarily evil human beings. And when I saw the film for the first time, and I have you to thank for seeing it, Larry, when I saw the film for the first time, I, I, I was sure again, yeah, that these, 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 these two children, this is awful. They, they must be psychopaths. As you sort of said, I can't believe they're out in the free air. And yet after the movie comes out, we, it becomes discovered who they are. And it turns out that just as Fran Walsh imagined, envisioned in the film without knowing what would happen to them in their lives, that they both were essentially good people in the rest of their lives. Both essentially decent people who just did something terrible. I'm not sure, Larry, if you followed uh, the fate of both of these actual young women. I know one of them became an author under a different name. Um, and I know that they both, I think one of them stayed relatively close to where she grew up and the other one somewhere in the excited States, maybe. I don't the, know. Well, well, actually, well, the one is, the one is in England and Anne Perry, the Kate Winslet character was a very successful novelist. And so this is again, Fran Walsh didn't know any of this when she wrote the screenplay, but she gives Kate Winslet's character this interest in literature, this incredible imagination. She writes her as someone who's determined to be a great writer long before we discover that's exactly what she's become. And the, and Anne Perry is, yeah, by all means, her, her stories, my wife has read dozens of her books, she's a very prolific writer, are all about characters facing difficult moral dilemmas, trying to atone for the things that they've done. Right. So she's, she's, she's exactly as we see someone who is in a terrible position, who is drawn into this in the most believable way, but but hardly evil, and hardly feels evil. Yeah. And even the other character, Melanie Linsky's character, we, we see in the film that she loves horses, and that's what she ended up doing with her life, actually, teaching people to ride horses and trying to atone. Yeah, she's the one who lives in the States, I think, trying to atone for what she did. Like, and the story is fascinating. I think, like, that was... It was going to be fascinating probably whoever tackled it, but I'm so glad that it was Peter Jackson. I think second only to Terry Gilliam, Peter Jackson knows how to sort of convey this feeling of madness without overspilling, without making the movie fall apart into chaos. He can bring you right to the lip of lunacy and just sort of let you hover there for a while so you see the fever of these guys' madness. And I, I don't know how... Like, I wouldn't know how to accomplish that as a filmmaker. I think that's a really difficult thing to put across. And it feels so effortless, the way Peter Jackson does it. And we start hearing what their fantasies are, then we start seeing a little bit of their fantasy, and then slowly the fantasy just overtakes everything. I also think a real reason why I, I sympathize, maybe not forgive, but sympathize with these girls is the catalyst, what's the thing that makes them resolve to kill this woman? Do you remember? The idea that they're going to be separated. Their separation. The breaking of the they friendship. Somehow, if they murder Melanie Linsky's mother, they can be together, which yeah. is, of course, nonsense. There was no, there was no happy ending. Even, even, like, yeah, on its face. Just because Melanie Linsky's mother was suddenly dead, even if they weren't caught for it, that didn't mean that Melanie Linsky was suddenly going to be adopted, you know, <laughs> by Kate Winslet's family. Like, it was some weird, Hail Mary, desperate plea to please not separate us. We need each other. And the truth was, 
they needed to be away from each other. They were exacerbating each other's madness. And the other heartbreaking things, like when they go to the doctor and he diagnoses her with homosexuality. <laughs> it's a funny scene, but it's also heartbreaking because this is a girl who needs help, not like shame. Right? Yes, and you see the poor mother being very upset hearing this diagnosis. Yeah. But Although that's just it the makes time. it a good film, this is the one aspect that both women say wasn't true. Oh yeah, they did not physic- yeah, have a physical relationship. Yeah, it wasn't physical. It wasn't sexual. This is the one point where where Fran Walsh's speculation got ahead of her. Okay. Well, I believe I see where it comes that. from. Like their connection is so powerful, and they're so desperate to be together that I, I can see making that that assumption or connection. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think it hurts the movie that it's there. In fact, this movie started a long-form fascination with me with uh, Kate Winslet. I thought she was very, very attractive in this movie, even though she was batshit out of her mind. She was also clearly, well, at a very young age, an incredibly strong actress. Like, you could tell that yeah. right away. This is this is the remarkable another remarkable thing Peter Jackson did. It's it, it, you know we have so many movies about teenagers played by people who are going on thirty, yeah. and he managed to find two really talented teenage actors. That's hard to do because every couple of years they stop being teenagers, right? And they're still working today. Both of them are doing quite well for themselves, and it uh, all born out of this one movie. <laughs> I kind of feel like Kate Winslet was going to get found, but Melanie Linsky might not have, and I'm so glad that she was, because she's great in the movie. I think she's maybe the colder of the two characters, but in a way, I, I kind of dig her, too. <laughs> like, she does have a chip on her shoulder, but, like, you know where it comes from? Oh, yeah. It, 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 the chemistry's great between them, and Sarah Pierce, who plays the mother. As oh. you say, just the... The the combination, the alchemy of the acting, of the cinematography, of the special effects, which range from claymation to CGI, capture the madness perfectly. And it's weird because the movie is strangely invigorating, considering it is a tragedy and it does end very somberly, as necessarily it should. The, there was something about this movie that screamed out to be watched, which is why I probably bugged you into made you watch it with me again, because... It was one of those movies I discovered in the 90s where when I found out people hadn't seen it, I was like, you really need to watch Heavenly Creatures. <laughs> and uh, all these years later, my, my position on it has not changed. If you have not seen Heavenly Creatures, you really need to. And if you think we've spoiled it for you, we can't adequately describe it. It's something that needs to be experienced. Well, um, that's right. That This is where I would contrast it to something like The Machinist, which is a very grim movie. I think you'd agree. Oh, absolutely. Even if it's a, it was ultimate redemption. This is a joyful movie. This is a movie full of life and energy. This is a movie that's a pleasure to watch. This is, this is the sense, if there is tragedy and if there is darkness, this is the Aristotelian catharsis where you actually leave it feeling better than you did before. Yeah. You're drained, you're exhausted, you're moved, but, but there's, there's the sheer filmmaking is so thrilling and uh, that it doesn't get me down to watch it. 
the humanity of it. The, those are real characters. These are real people. There is no black hat. There is no white hat. This is just a tragic thing that happened. And you kind of feel helpless as you watch it play out. But it's it's real. It's human. And that I wonder if that's the thing. Like, <laughs> no big spoilers, Brendan. This is going to be my number one on my list. But is it because it's based off of the true story that it's number one? Like, did it have that extra weight to it that, that made it seem somehow, quote-unquote, more important? Or is it just, just the better of the movies? Yes, this is what makes a movie feel real. What makes it feel convincingly real? I don't have the answer. As I say, obviously, some aspects of the girl's story they may got up wrong. Some they may have fictionalized. But not only does it feel real, as if it is your story, that it has that that that, that it has to be compelling. Yeah, it, it feels real, whether or not it is. And I'm not quite sure how Peter Jackson achieves that effect. If for some reason this podcast is finding your ears and you have not seen Heavenly Creatures. You have made poor decisions. There's always time to mend, Larry. There's always time to make amends. <laughs> Is, there we'll there to say, into the to... Is there anything else you wanted to say about Heavenly Creatures, brother? There's far too much, Larry. Let's just leave it here. <laughs> it's good. Let's say that. So here we go with our psychological thriller director master class. I am curious to hear what was your least favorite of these six films and why? My least favorite was the game because I didn't care about Michael Douglas and I knew that he wasn't in any real danger or at least according to the logic of this ridiculous film, he wasn't in any real danger the whole time. Hmm. All right. More need to be said. I think not. Next, I would rank The Machinist. I admire it. I respect it. But I really, really find it a slog to watch it every time. It gives me no joy. Hmm. All right. Next on the list, so fourth out of six, I would say Trance. In fact, I almost feel bad about putting it this low because maybe this deserves more comment, Larry. We, we talked about how ridiculous this movie was, how silly it was, how it's impossible even to explain the batshit plot 
But the truth is, it was a lot of fun. The sort of movie that I would actually enthusiastically recommend to someone under the right circumstances. If they just wanted to watch something stupid and laugh about how stupid it is, uh, it rates pretty high. So in terms of sheer entertainment value, it should probably be third on the list rather than fourth where I have it. Alas, here it sits. <laughs> yes, that's right, because even though it isn't nearly as entertaining as trans, I will give Christopher Nolan's Insomnia third place. It, it would feel uncharitable not to recognize the fact that so many people showed up to work and tried to produce a quality film, even if it is fairly stale, fairly bland. And so that gives us uh, second place. I would rank a simple plan. It says we think we agree. It has a film surprisingly uneven in that it has apparently a lot going for it because somehow it can make us forget the ridiculous screenplay. <laughs> Which leads, of course, for my number one choice, as we would both agree clearly, Heavenly Creatures. In fact, I would be depressed to find any list of films you would give me where I probably wouldn't put this at the very top. Because, as I said at the top of our discussion, I don't know many films or many works of art in general that create this sense of pity and horror and catharsis that this remarkable film does. So I've got to put it at the top. Well, we definitely agree on that. I mean, that's definitely a case where there, there's no... There's nobody who in that movie who is evil, whereas in some of the other films, it seems like all of the characters were evil, you know? Yeah. Not so in Heavenly Creatures. Well, it's interesting, brother. We only agree in one place, and I think you know where that one place is going to be. Uh, in sixth place, and it breaks my heart to do it, because Danny Boyle is one of my favorite filmmakers. I do have to put Trance there. You're right in that it's got this kinetic energy and vibe to it that it is it holds your attention for sure while you're there. And I think unlike you, like I I recommend these movies for the most part. They're in my collection. I like the filmmakers. They're they're, they're positive reviews. So I, I I'm not completely dismissing them the way you did some of them. But in the end of the day, this is just a trashy noir thriller that's as much as he's trying to disguise it with style, it is just another trashy thriller, you know? So I expect more from Danny Boyle. I hold him to a higher bar, and I, with no joy, put his trance in sixth place. All the way in fifth place, which is going to seem crazy to you, I'm sure, I am putting Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. It's fine. It's completely fine. The acting is good. The character work is not uninteresting. But whether you've seen this movie before or not, you've seen this movie before. I know that doesn't sound like it makes sense, but that's kind of how I feel about it. It could have been called Derivative Cop Thriller instead of Insomnia. <laughs> well made Derivative Cop Thriller, but Derivative Cop Thriller nonetheless. For much the same reason, the familiarity, I put a simple plan all the way in fourth place. Because I've, I've been here before. I am very, very conscious of the fact that it is the, the actors and the director that are getting me over the hurdle of this screenplay. And which surprises me because the screenplay got a lot of love. Like I said, it was, it was nominated for an Academy Award. 
I think yes to the acting, yes to the directing. I think that the the script could have more dimension to it personally, but I I like it. I like a lot about the movie. There's really good tense scenes in it. It's worth your time. My dark horse soldier that fought its way all the way to third because it does seem to me like a movie that should have been a one-time ride but just isn't for me. I put the game. I think David Fincher is really good at right. creating a thrilling sequence. I went with the concept and did not fight against it. So, um, although I never doubted that he was in a game, I doubted like like what the motivation of the game was. Like, were they going to kill him? Was that the game taking him to his death? Were they going to like you know blackmail him? What was? What was the end game of the game? Yes, I never thought that it was anything but a game, but I was always on my toes as to what what it, the real manipulation would be. And again, the acting from Michael Douglas taking us from this utterly cold person to this person who seems at least willing to take on life in a real emotional way that he wasn't before. I don't know. I felt a lot worked in the game, and it surprised me that it still holds up all these many years later for me. So I think that's the one that we probably disagreed the most on, because I ranked it all the way in third. (laughs) And all the way in second place, Brendan, I'm putting The Machinist. Transformative performance from Christian Bale, and like I said, as a person who has suffered from insomnia and knows what it's like to try and function... (laughs) when your brain is at like 10% capacity I could really relate to it I could really feel uh, how Brad Anderson's direction made that vibe you know real to people who probably haven't experienced it for me it really worked I agree with you it's probably the most unpleasant watch of all of these movies like you don't walk away whistling a tune you might need to watch like a an episode of The Simpsons or something as an antidote after you've seen it. But I do think it's worth your time. And I think it's worth it, like... this. It, it, the script kicked around for a long time. It, it, had to, it had a real uphill battle in getting made. But a lot of really, really gifted filmmakers and actors really felt passionate about getting this story out there. And uh, if one more person sees it because of this review, I'll call it a win. So, Machinist in second place. Yeah, Heavenly Creatures, probably a good five or six yards ahead of any of the other ones in the race. I think it's an exceptional film in that it was probably the best movie of the year it came out and probably the best film of the five years before and after it came out. It's a ridiculously great accomplishment. Anything that Peter Jackson does, good, bad, or whatever from henceforth, I think he will always have Heavenly Creatures and I think he'll always have the Lord of the Rings trilogy to sort of say that Peter Jackson's the real deal. He is a filmmaker and he's worth the hype. So yes, Heavenly Creatures in number one. Brilliant performance, brilliant execution, heartbreaking, heartbreaking story. If you haven't seen it, watch it now. And uh, of all of the movies on the list, that's the one I feel most passionately about it. I think the other ones, you'll know from our description whether it will interest you or not. But Heavenly Creatures is a lock, as far as I'm concerned. I think that if you walk away from Heavenly Creatures seeing nothing of value, you're probably just not that into film. Yeah, we'll certainly respect anyone less. I think we agree on that, Larry. (laughs) But we disagree on all the others. But we're not fighting. We're still friends, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, yes, but heavenly creatures is different. Well, if they... your heart is no place for heavenly creatures, you have no heart. That's right. That's right. If it doesn't break your heart, there's something deeply missing <laughs> with you. Thank you so much for doing another episode of Rank and Review with me, Brendan. I know we had a lot of technical difficulties to fight through this episode, but I appreciate you staying the course. Oh, I appreciate you inviting me back to do this. I enjoy to hear the podcast, and I really enjoy being part of it. such a high quality list. Oh well, if we agreed on everything, it would be boring. I thought this was a really strong list of movies. If you disagree, please let me know by writing me at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca. And please tell that other movie fan in your life about the podcast. As always, I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and thank you so much for listening. I drop every other Wednesday.